Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hey everybody, thank you for joining me again. Um, I'm a little later getting this podcast out than I normally would be. Uh, forgive me for that. In the realm of spirit, time doesn't really exist, so I guess it's okay anyway. At least that's what one of my teachers told me. Uh, it is just after sunrise here in Maine, and we had a couple of storms come through over the past few days, which... Um, you know, dumped a little bit of snow on us, and it's just beautiful. Um, the sun is out, the sky is blue, uh, the sun is streaming across the snow and through the trees, and uh, it, it's just beautiful to look out. And I, I hope that wherever you are, you don't have to be in a spot as traditionally beautiful as Maine, but I hope wherever you are, you can find some beauty and something that you can see or touch or hear today. And, you know, looking for beauty, you'll find it. Your intention will guide you. So if you take a little bit of time or just to set the intention to look for beauty today, something that really touches you and makes you feel good and connected today, I think it'll make your day better. I hope so. Today's topic is near and dear to my heart. Um, I want to, the topic is what is shamanism? And I'm going to talk, well, I'm going to talk about shamanism. And that is my spiritual home, for lack of a better term. Um, Shamanism is not a religion, so I don't, can't really call it my religion. I could call it um, my practice, but it's more than that. So I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to, uh, shamanism is also a big buzzword right now. It's become increasingly popular, um, certainly in the United States. Uh, I see evidence of that happening in other places, and I will talk about why I think that's happening as well. It's not just, in my opinion, a some kind of new age buzzword. There is there is a reason why the shamanic impulse is uh, waking up or waking people up across the world at this moment. Um, So let's talk about what is a shaman and what uh, shamanism is and where the word comes from and all of those things. And this will give you some (laughs) some background of why why this, uh, you know, why I'm going to talk about it in the the ways that I do. Um, I'll say this, that we apply the word shaman and the word shamanism to a lot of different things. And some of that is because it's a, a challenging, they're challenging words to define. And another reason is they're loan words into English. Um, and their actual origins are a little bit lost at the moment. Maybe some linguistic research down the road. But I'll, I'll talk about where we get the word from in English anyway. Um, and, the, you know, the words have been ap- applied cross-culturally to all kinds of spiritual workers, spiritual medicine, that sort of thing. 
Um, and, you know, definitions are useful when they're agreed to, but there certainly may not be universal agreement. So when I give you my definition, um, that certainly is not going to agree with with other people. And that's fine. We can disagree about that because words are words are symbols. They're not the thing that we're describing, right? They're shortcuts into our consciousness. I use this I use this example a lot. If I use the word dog, that's not a dog. But if we have a common understanding of what the word dog means, we can talk about a dog. The map is not the territory. The model is not the thing. The word isn't the thing that it describes. Um, it's just a shortcut. It's a symbol. So the word shaman, um, and I'll preface this by saying that in my tradition, I do not call myself a shaman. I use, when describing myself, I prefer the phrase shamanic practitioner. Sometimes people will call me a shamanic healer. That's also fine if I'm doing healing work. I don't limit myself to healing work, but that's one type of work that I do. And I consider myself a teacher. I teach shamanism and other, you know, spiritual topics. I teach meditation, um, qigong, and some other, you know. But my main my, my main focus is sh- shamanism. So I could be a shamanic teacher, shamanic practitioner, shamanic healer. I don't use the word shaman, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. The word shaman comes into English from Russian and German, okay? And before that, before it was in Russian and German, it was a word uh, from the Tungus people in Siberia. So it's Tungusic, I believe is how you say it, in Siberia. Um, and there it means, you know, what you think, you know, the word shaman means what you think. It's this, you know, this holy person that you go to, um, that does spiritual work for you. They're a spiritual officiant for lack of a better term. Um, however, roots of the word shaman do show up in some Chinese languages. They show up in Sanskrit. They show up in Pali, the language you know, the language that the Buddha spoke. And so its exact origins are a little bit lost. Um, In in those cultures, in Pali and I believe Sanskrit and in the dialects of Chinese where it exists, um, it basically means like priest or monk or something along those lines. To the Tungus people, the word shaman means um, one who sees in the dark or one who sees clearly. And if you ever see video or photos of um, a Siberian shaman, frequently they're wearing a cover over their eyes, what we would refer to as um, Siberian eye curtain. Um, sometimes it's it's a hat with fringe that covers the eyes. Um, and this is a tool that they use in their work. So what are we talking about when we talk about the word in English? Um, to me, shamanism involves three main components, and if you're not doing them, you're doing something else. Um, and, and it's fine that you're doing something else, but when I talk about um, shamanizing, we turn that into a verb. Um, when I talk about shamanizing, I'm talking about three components, spiritual acts that comprise three components. 
Um, and these will be at the center of what we're talking about. And these are things that, you know, back in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, anthropologists went around the world looking at what we consider shamanic cultures, cultures where they would have someone, you know, fulfilling the role of shaman. And looking at what these cultures did in common, what were the common practices, techniques, technologies that they were using. Um, And so there are three of them. One is, so the definition is a shaman is a, uh, you know, a spiritual worker who uses altered states of consciousness to travel in or experience non-ordinary states of reality and who works with helping spirits uh, to do work. And that's frequently healing or getting information or, um, you know, other things, uh, ceremonies, rituals, that sort of thing. Um, Usually there's a healing component of some kind. So those three components are uh, using altered state of consciousness. That's component one. Component two, traveling in non-ordinary reality. Okay, so most shamanic cultures recognize um, spiritual worlds that they travel in. And this is the, the main practice is journeying in these spiritual worlds. Okay, different words for them in other cultures, dream time, other world, um, in Core shamanism, we refer to sort of upper world, lower world, middle world. Um, lots and lots of cross-cultural stuff here. And then the last component is working with helping spirits. So a shaman is always working with other spirits, and they might do that in different ways. It might involve, you know, in some cultures being taken over by the spirit. In some cultures, they're just um, communing with them or communicating or merging or... Um, calling upon them, evoking them, invoking them. Um, But all three of those components are present when we're doing shamanism. So let's talk about altered states. How do shamans enter altered states? And a lot of people, so there's a misconception that um, all shamans use drugs or hallucinogens, plant medicine, what have you, um, soma in some cultures, ayahuasca, psilocybin. Um, there's lots and lots of chemicals and plants um, that can be used to enter altered states of consciousness. Um, and it is true that the use of plant medicines um, exist in traditional cultures all over the world. So we see, um, you know, the Sami people in um you know, in, in northern Scandinavia, um, there are rituals involving uh, fly agaric mushrooms. Uh, we see in, you know, South America, South and Central America, we see things like ayahuasca. Um, we see peyote in the uh, southwestern United States. We see iboga coming from Africa. Um, so there's, it, it does, you know, these hallucinogens exist all over the place. Um, and they are used, and they are used shamanically. For the most part, though, the majority of shamanic cultures use other means to alter their consciousness. A big one uh, that I use a lot is to use sound, 
um, such as rhythmic drumming um, or rattling or, you know, some sort of sound to enter the specific shamanic state. And what we know is that, um, you know, there are different patterns of brain. We know this now in modern times, obviously, before the invention of things like EEGs and, and um, you know, much more modern science. We didn't specifically have this information, but for thousands of years, um, shamans knew what they were doing when they were altering their brains. Um, and so they, you know, generate these uh, brain waves. Um, using sound called uh, theta waves, right? It's around four hertz if you're scientific, or four cycles a second, or um, you know, drumming at 220 beats per minute uh, would give you a theta brainwave state. And in this state, your ego breaks down a little bit. You become much more open and are able to do the things that you need to do to get into a journey much more easily. So drumming is one another way. Um, there are cultures, um, I'm thinking of uh, Bushman cultures in Africa that use, um, you know, this uses sort of like extreme form of dancing where they might dance for 24 hours without food or water to put themselves in, in you know, these crazy altered states. Um, and, you know, dancing is another are another really common way to enter altered states. Um, I'm sure there are lots of them. I'm sure there are lots and lots of ways. Um, but there's a specific state that shamans use, whether they're aware of you know EEG research or not. Uh, but it's it's common all over the world, um, and people I guess just knew that either through experimentation or through some sort of divine revelation that this particular state, um, you know, brainwave state was tuning the brain to the correct frequency for doing shamanic work, for lack of a better term. If we think of the brain not as the generator of consciousness, but as the as a receiver of consciousness, because I, I believe that consciousness is non-local, but that the human brain is a is a receiver that can be tuned and so tuning the brain to a specific vibratory pattern um, opens it up to shamanic work. So that's part one. So and then so part one is entering these altered states. Part two is um, you know traveling in non-ordinary realms. And again, like this, there's an you know, as I said, shamanism appears all over the world in every culture. It shows up in, you know, it's called different things and it has, there's always a cultural overlay, right? There's always, um, you know, the information about it comes filtered through the culture and the cultural understanding of the people that, you know, the, the group that the, the shaman, you know, identifies with, that the culture that they've grown up in. So in, you know, in um, many cultures there, you know, the non-ordinary reality exists and is called, you know, the other world or dream time or um, lots and lots of different things. Okay. And what we find that's really common is there is, there are usually um, experiences of traveling down into the earth 
which we have called the lower world. And don't worry, it's not, um, you know, those of us who grew up in a predominantly Christian culture might think that that's hellish or going to hell because we always think of hell as down and lower and that sort of thing. Those are just, um, you know, those are symbols that don't really apply here. That's, you know, from another system. Those are symbols from another system. They don't really apply. I travel to the lower world nearly every day, and it is a beautiful nature-like place um, when you when you when you tune into that. And in the lower world, this is where we meet power animals, not to be confused with what have been called spirit animals or totems. Power animals are different. They're animal spirits that we have sort of one-on-one relationships with. And in most cultures, um, you know, working with power animals is very common, very, very common. These spirit allies that are, that come to us, um, as you know, sort of the, in the form of deceased animals. Um, very powerful work to be done with helping spirits. So, uh, in non-ordinary reality, we also consider an what we call an upper world. And really, these again, these are models. These are um, labels that we're placing on states of consciousness that are experienced as traveling up or down in non-ordinary reality. Um, there are, as far as I know infinite levels of of reality there's many 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 but it just makes it easier we can't you know makes it possible to talk about if we break it down into um rather large chunks of description um and so there's an upper world and and um you know a lot of shamanic cultures talk about being you know born on the wings of an eagle or or flying upward into heaven or being pulled up somehow and it's a little bit of a different experience there and there we meet um, teachers that might be more human-like, less animal-like, although that's not always the case. Um, that's where your sort of human-like helping spirits hang out, where you might meet gods and goddesses and um, angels and uh, you know deceased ancestors and that sort of thing is this sort of upper realm. And then there's this middle world, which is the world that we live in, in... Uh, in Old Norse, we would call that Midgard, right? The middle world. Um, and that's the world that we live in, but there's a spiritual overlay there, right? This is spiritual overlay. And um, middle world is where we encounter things like nature spirits, um, fairies and sprites and jinn and genies and all kinds of stuff, right? So, um, so that's not ordinary reality. And then, I've touched a little bit on working with helping spirits, right? We have power animals that we work with to do a tremendous amount of work. We have what we call upper world teachers. Um, most people practicing shamanism will start to gather a community of uh, spirits that they work with. And in my experience, these spirits are a little specialized. In other words, they Work. I'll, I'll work with a spirit for a specific piece of work. One of the things we do, um, one of the things that most shamanic practitioners do is a ceremony called um, soul retrieval, and it's a shamanic way of helping to deal with trauma, amongst other things, but um, it deals with uh, soul loss, soul separation, soul fragmentation, that sort of thing. And I have a specific... Uh, helping spirit that I work with for that work. And then another piece of work might be um, 
what we call psychopomp work, which is helping um, helping people who are deceased cross over to where they should be going, um, sort of, you know, helping with that kind of work. And I have other helping spirits that I work with for that, that type of work. And um, so they're a little bit specialized, and they're helping spirits for doing ancestor work, for doing weather work, for doing um, all kinds of stuff. Okay, so we normally, we gather... We gather a team, right? A team of specialists, um, and that's really uh, that's really helpful. And you know, um, one of the things I like about the practice of shamanism is um, one of the ways that it keeps my ego from getting really big is that it reminds me that I'm not the one doing the work. We always consider that it's the helping spirits actually doing the work. I'm just acting as a clear a conduit as I possibly can for the work to happen, right? So that is, uh, that's shamanism in a nutshell. Um, well, that is the definition of shamanism in a nutshell. You have these three components, right, that I've been talking about. So why do we have people acting in the role of shaman in showing up in every culture, in every, um, you know, every location on the planet where people, where there are people, um, you know, why is this, why is shamanism this universal phenomena, right? Why is it showing up everywhere at all times in recorded history, and um, it actually looks like shamanism is prehistoric. So let me, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. But I think you could make a really good argument um, that would probably be backed up by modern science that um, shamanic practice, the practice of shamanism, is the oldest form of human spirituality, at least that still exists today. So we might say it's the oldest continuous form of human spirituality. Okay, so we think about, um, you know, the oldest, I don't, I don't know what the oldest um, sort of, you know, modern non-prehistoric religion would be, um, but we'll say, you know, we'll say, uh, Judaism is pretty old for a Western religion, right? And, you know, it's, I don't know, five, traces back five or 6,000 years. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure there are Eastern religions that are equally, if not older than that. So religions in, in Asia, um, I'm not sure how far back the, you know, what we would consider the, the Hindu faith um Go go back. I know the texts are are pretty. Some of the texts are pretty ancient. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's there are forms of spirituality that that exist today that go back several thousand years. Um, the thing is, we have evidence now that we think um, cave paintings done by humans, but done by you know what we anatomically modern humans anyway going back as far as 30, 40,000 years, have, um, are displaying shamanic states of consciousness. We see these things called entoptic 
patterns in this artwork. We see um, therianthropy, so we see paintings of things that are half animal, half person. Um, uh, there's lots of evidence that this is the case, and there is some support for that, some belief for that. So we think that um, shamanism is probably the oldest practice of spirituality that uh, you know that that still exists today. It goes back tens of thousands of years. Um, we don't really have evidence of humans doing uh, much more symbolic thought before that. There was it looks like there was a time about fifty thousand years ago where humans started, um, you know, painting pictures, having symbolic thought. Um, but that's just current archaeological evidence. That's just what we have now. Certainly things could become much older and new discoveries happen all the time that push timelines back for things. So it's possible then to consider that shamanism might be the original form of human spirituality. As soon as humans were able um, to alter their consciousness, to um, experience uh, you know, experience what, what shamans experienced, they were using that as a tool. And if you think about it, you know, we didn't have uh, modern allopathic medicine developed yet, or even um, you know, traditional Chinese medicine or a lots of forms of herbology and stuff. And so humans had to survive as a species in um, conditions that, you know, can, and with conditions and tools that weren't fantastic, right? Humans are not the fastest runners. We don't have um, the sharpest teeth, the biggest claws. We're not the strongest. We're not the best climbers. But what humans are, we're adaptable and we have, we're social and we have the ability of symbolic thought, Right? We have the ability to paint pictures. We have the ability to describe things using language. And that has been a huge survival advantage to us. Right? We, we um, you know, that symbolic thought, that ability to form uh, even spiritual ideas and gather people together um, for a common good, those things are what kept humans alive while other ancestors died out. There's not um, evidence of Neanderthals, for example, doing cave paintings yet. I mean, I don't know. That might They might discover that at some point. Um, you know, and certainly Neanderthals were probably capable of some symbolic thought, um, but we don't really have evidence of uh, the level that modern humans had. Homo sapiens, and the same is kind of the same is true for other. So you know, around uh, you know, in, in the early days of Homo sapiens, there were lots of other um, races of humans out there. And when I say race, I don't mean the way we think of race today. I I, I mean um, genus and species. You know, or at least species of humans were different, right? We had Neanderthals. Um, Denisovan man, we had um, all kinds of hominids out there. Um, and then the one thing that we definitely can see that's different about modern humans is this capability towards 
symbolic thought towards um, religiosity, for lack of a ter- better term, spirituality, right? And, um, you know, the ability to do um, spiritual work really, I think, provided a, a an evolutionary advantage that um, modern humans survived and other um, other species either, you know, interbred with humans but didn't continue to exist as a species. They died out at some point. We do not still have um, Neanderthals walking around. Although, you know, some people, like myself, I have um, a bit of Neanderthal DNA. So there was some, there was some interbreeding going on there, but um, we don't have... Uh, pure DNA, you know, species of Neanderthals uh, walking around these days. Um, and there's a lot of speculation as to why that is, but I, I'm just saying that I think one strong advantage that um, Homo sapiens had uh, was this ability for um, symbolic thought that at, at a level, anyway, that we don't see in any other species on the planet. I do believe now they're doing research with um, primates and birds and showing that they are capable of um, symbolic thought and perhaps um, maybe even, you know, super primitive forms of uh, spirituality or ritual, certainly. Um, And so um, there is that, but certainly not developed to the level where human beings developed it. So... One thing about um, shamanism is that, you know, we consider, if you look at the work of Jung, and he talks about the collective unconscious, and we have these archetypes that spring up, which are universal, they're universal patterns that exist in uh, the collective conscious, right? We're not always aware of them. Um, One example is the hero, and we talk about Joseph Campbell's, you know, the hero's journey, which is common in... Um, every mythology on the planet, um, right? So the hero is an archetype. It's a pattern that shows up. Um, And I think the shamanic archetype is the same thing. I think the shaman shows up. I think every mythology um, on the planet contains elements of shamanic initiation, voyages to underworlds, to above worlds, um, dealing with spiritual creatures, all of these things. I um, I think the shaman is is, you know, on one level, you know, a shaman is an actual physical human being doing stuff on this planet, but I think there is an archetype, and I think it pops up everywhere on the planet, and I think it is um, as old as humanity itself. Um, I think it would be hard, you know, again, I'm proposing a lot of things that would be difficult to disprove, um, but this is, you know, I'm, I'm posting as this is my opinion. This is my thought on this after having, you know, read significantly in this area and, um, done a lot of my own research and, um, in fact, journeyed quite a lot about this. The shamanic archetype activates in human cultures, um, and in human individuals as the result of crisis. And in fact, a lot of the literature talks about, shamanic crisis and what does crisis mean crisis is some sort of um we'll say abnormal threat right so right now as i record this we are in the middle of a global pandemic 
that is a crisis because it is an existential threat to many people. It has changed lives. It has threatened livelihoods. It has profoundly affected our culture the way, you know, no matter where you are, the way things have been done has changed. And um, in my opinion, this is one of the reasons why there has been this sort of wave-like resurgence of interest in shamanism. People are waking up to spirituality. They're waking up to this shamanic impulse as a way of dealing with this. It's a response. The awakening impulse, the awakening shamanic impulse, is a response to crisis. On an individual level, most people I know who... um, There are a certain number of people who are just interested in shamanism and might take a weekend workshop or something like that. But most people I know who go very deeply into shamanism, become practitioners and teachers and that sort of thing, um, have gone through significant life passages. So this could be, um, you know, I know someone who had several near-death experiences. Um, For me, it was, um, you know, it was a what we might refer to as have referred to as nervous breakdown or psychological breakdown that I went through um, years ago that I didn't know that I could come back from. Um, And it was a mental and physical crisis on an individual level. So we see this showing up again and again. And, and in many, in many shamanic cultures around the world, shamans are chosen on the basis of, uh, having gone through some sort of crisis. Sometimes they have to be born with a physical deformity. Sometimes they might be struck by lightning, um, have a mystery illness. This is called the shamanic illness. Um, and you'll see it frequently, somebody falling ill with something that uh, medical science has a hard time diagnosing, a hard time treating, um, that sort of thing. And they'll come out of it you know, somewhat awakened or with the impulse to um, do shamanic work. Um, I think, I don't, I don't know how really to estimate how frequently this happens. Everyone goes through crisis. Does that awaken the shamanic impulse in everyone? Um, I think no. I think there are people who have a um, kind of a makeup that's geared towards that, Um and, uh, you know, might have been drawn to spirit their whole lives, but never really had a, had a place to do it or a place to put it. But, um, you know, crisis kind of opens you up. It kind of cracks you open. And um, in, it's in healing that those wounds, where they're never completely healed, there's always a resonance there. You know, there's a, there's a poem that says, you know, the cracks are where the light comes through. Right, it's that cracking apart, that breaking down of the ego. Sometimes that allows um, people practicing shamanism to become clear channels, or in some cultures, it's called the hollow bone. Right, the hollow bone that spirit passes through. Um, so, yeah, so shamanism arises as a response to crisis, personal and cultural. So, when culture goes through crisis, a lot of people sort of um, wake up. And that doesn't mean, when I say wake up, I'm not putting that in the sense of, you know, of like Buddhist awakening um, or, 
you know, ascension or any of those, like you've reached another level. Um, what I mean is I've been going through my life and then all of a sudden I realize that, um, you know, there's this huge crisis I need to deal with and ordinary methods I might use to deal with crisis are not working for me. And it's, it's a wake-up call. Maybe that's a better phrase, wake-up call, rather than, than awakening. There's a lot of baggage around terms like awakening and ascension and, and all of these things. So the shamanic viewpoint, um, there is a viewpoint, there is uh, a way that shamans commonly look at things. And again, it's different culture by culture. Of course, everybody looks at everything through the lens of the culture that they are, you know, they have been raised in or that they have adopted or that they have lived in for a really long time. Um, it's good to be aware of these things, right? So I'm speaking to you in English, and I know that for many of you, English is not your first language. And so when I use words, um, I know inherently that they may have slightly different meanings for you, and you might be looking at them in a way that um, you haven't, you know, I have experiences with certain words, with certain symbols that you have have experienced differently, um, and that's fine. So, um, so when I say that, you know, there's a thing that's in, that's common, it shows, it does, you know, it shows up in different ways, but this is a fairly common thing. I, you know, I can't say if it's universal because then somebody would, if I said this is in every shamanic culture, you know, I'm sure somebody out there could say, oh no, this tribe from here does not believe that way, but. When I say common, I would say almost every shamanic culture um, practitioner has a viewpoint that I would say describe as animistic. Animism is the belief that, um, you know, one way of describing the animistic belief is that it's the belief that spirit is in everything. Um, this is the way I see it. So I see spirit in trees, in grass, in rivers and rocks, in animals and people. Um, I see spirit, uh, I see the earth as a sort of giant spirit, a giant collective spirit. But spirit also exists in man-made things, so anything you can perceive as a separate object is a spirit. It just has a physical component to it. Okay, so if I make something, let's say I make, I have this coffee cup in front of me. I'm going to have a sip, as a matter of fact. <sighs> Delicious. Um, this coffee cup in front of me, some human made that, right? Say, so took some, some clay from the earth, has some spirit, some bit of the, the earthly spirit was in that lump of clay, and it was formed, it's the cup, and then... You know, the, there's this, in, in non-ordinary reality, there is this spirit of the cup. But the cup also has a physical representation here on earth um, because I can pick it up and I can put coffee in it and I can um, drink out of it. So we see everything as a spirit. Um, we can talk to, you know, we can talk to most things. Sometimes they talk back. 
Um, particularly during journey, middle world journeys, you can talk to trees and rocks and um, uh, get information. Um, and as I said, that a bluebird just flew by my window. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not making that up. Um, and it just flew by again. It's sweeping back and forth across my window. Um, so it's lovely to see. I talk to the birds, especially lots of birds where I am. And, um, and so the shamanic viewpoint is animistic, that there are spirits everywhere and travel. And I mentioned this before, but in the middle world, there are, um, you do encounter lots of spirits that do not have a physical component, right? They do not have a physical body. Um, and those spirits sometimes are seen as, um, and, and gosh, every culture has some name for little people, right? Little, little people that are sort of on the edge of spirit and um, physical reality, um, uh, I can't think of the term, but, um, uh, there's, you know, in Hawaiian culture, there are these little, uh, little elves that, um, uh, build things overnight. Like they're, you know, giant walls are built overnight by these, um, you know, these, uh, you know, these little elf-like creatures. And in, um, you know, in, in countries that were sort of Celtic at one point, so, um, you know, parts of, you know, UK and, and that area, we have a whole fairy faith, a whole faith built up around um, the fae, the fairies. Um, but we have, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, European cultures with fairies and trolls and elves and gnomes and all of these things. And um, we think of them as, we have the phrase in English, fairy tale, right? A story that isn't a story that isn't real where we talk about fairies and supernatural creatures and that sort of thing. Um, I'll tell you that, you know, reality is kind of a flexible thing. So are there things that are real that um, aren't reflected in physical reality? Well, sure. Your subjective experience of consciousness, um, you know, we can get, we could go down the rabbit hole of discussing consciousness, but your, your entire subjective uh, experience of reality does not really have a physical representation. And yes, I, you could, you know, go into a functional MRI machine and say this area of your brain is lighting up and this area of your brain is lighting up. But none of that explains your subjective experience. That's electrical activity. But how do you go through life experiencing the world? How do you, how do um, waves made in the air sound like a symphony to you? How do you recreate a symphony in your consciousness? Um, to me, electrical signals bouncing back and forth um, can't really explain that, can't really explain what I'm feeling when I touch something or when I taste something. Um, you know, my experiences of not of electrical symbols pack, passing back and forth. And to me, consciousness is, um, is reality. And so is it possible then that there are things that are real? I believe my consciousness is real. Maybe I'm imagining my consciousness, but what is consciousness, conscious of that imagining? Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of joking, but it's a little bit of a brain teaser, right? Um, so consciousness is my experience of reality, 
and does not necessarily have a physical representation. So are there things that are real? Um, I can make it simpler. Um, if you have a thought in your in your head, if you think of a um, if you think of a purple elephant, is that purple elephant real or not necessarily real? But is the thought real? Did you really have the thought? Did the thought occur in this reality? Were you conscious of it? Um, and the answer to that is yes. So even on just the mental level, there are things that exist that do not have physical representation, that do not have physical bodies. Um, and so whether or not you believe in fairy tale creatures um, and you think um, I'm psychotic when I go out and talk to land spirits or um, trees or whatever uh, is beside the point. Like we could, we could potentially agree that there are things that we would describe as real that don't have physical presence. And, you know, there are no, um, there are no cultures I can think of that do not have the belief in non-physical entities, right? So every culture out there believes in spirits of some sort, um, whether that's the spirit that, you know, whether they're animistic or not, right? We believe that people have spirits, that um, there are ghosts, that there are, um, you know, so these things are universal. These things exist in cultures that uh, had no contact with each other for tens of thousands of years at least, right? Maybe maybe longer, right, when, when humans started you know, migrating all over the planet. And that, that timeline keeps getting pushed back further and further. You know, they find evidence of um, human activity in Europe now going back, you know, tens of thousands of years earlier than uh, they thought humans uh, went, out of, went out of Africa. So that timeline keeps getting pushed back. So these are universal thoughts. These are things, again, the shamanic impulse, the animistic impulse, the all these things... Um, are fairly universal. That doesn't mean every you know that doesn't mean every human being on the planet believes in these things or believes in them in the same way. Right? There are atheists out there. There are material realists who think anything you cannot um, measure with equipment doesn't exist. Um, and that's fine. Um, that's their that's their belief. That's their reality. Um, but they can't measure their consciousness, right? You can't measure, can't attach, you can attach electrodes to your brain, but that is not your subjective experience of consciousness. So I go back to the, the idea that we can experience things that don't have physical representation. So I just want to recap a little bit, and I hope this has been informative for you. But um, I talked about shamanism um, and how it is the you know, it is a universal set of spiritual technologies, sp- practices, um, ways of uh, ways of interacting with spirit that go back at least tens of thousands of years, goes back into um, prehistoric times. Um, it exists 
The shamanic impulse exists while it is filtered through culture. It exists everywhere on the planet where there are human beings. Um, it arises as the result, as a response to crisis, both on an individual, cultural, and global level. Um, and that uh, shamans are, in general, animists, where we believe in spirits inhabiting things, particularly in the natural world, but um, I extend that to things that are man-made as well. I really hope this has been informative. Um, shamanism is my what I refer to as my spiritual home. Um, please reach out to me if you have any questions or wish to contact me, um, you can find me at mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com. listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com. 